Today's scripture reading is Amos 7, 1 to 17. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep, and it was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high place of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all of his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die, Jeroboam shall die, by, the, die by the sword. And Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophecy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. And your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again, friends. It's good to be together. And we're deep into the summer now. Uh, I pray for your endurance. It hasn't been an easy summer, an easy time, but I hope you're finding some time to get some kind of R&R, rest, refreshment. Of course, that's really hard to do during a pandemic, hard for all of us. So I, I, I'm praying that the Lord gives you uh, wisdom, creativity, uh, even practical opportunity to find refreshment over the next few weeks. Of course, it won't look like what it normally does in the summertime, but I pray over the next several weeks that the Holy Spirit would restore your bodies and your souls, because God knows we need it. So grace to you, my friends, and 
would love to pause and pray for you, for us together as we open God's word. Let's pray together. God, thank you again for gathering us together in this time. And I pray for the restoration of my brothers and sisters' bodies and their souls. And I pray even now in these moments that you would bring refreshment to our hearts by your word and your spirit. We really need you. So come and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It was a rainy day in Selma, Alabama in 1865. Standing there on the steps of the Dallas County Courthouse, a black minister raised up his voice. He was speaking to Sheriff Jim Clark, a noted segregationist in the area, who simply refused to allow a group of African-Americans into the courthouse to register to vote. As the sheriff turned his back to the minister, he, the minister thundered, you can turn your back on me, but you cannot turn your back on the idea of justice. You can turn your back now, and you can keep the club in your hand, but you cannot beat down justice. A scuffle eventually erupted, and the sheriff proceeded to punch the minister in the mouth, so forcefully, in fact, that he broke his own hand. Amazingly, this minister remained true to his commitment to principles of nonviolence refused to retaliate, even as he was promptly hauled off to jail. This incident was caught on camera and was broadcast that evening on news stations all throughout the country to the shock of many Americans. But the minister's courage and resolve was no shock at all to those who knew him. That minister was C.T. Vivian, the civil rights icon who died this past week. And although Reverend Vivian has gone on to be with the Lord, his life and his words continue to convict. You can turn your back on me, but you cannot turn your back on justice. You, you can keep a club in your hand, but you cannot beat down justice. In many ways, Reverend Vivian's words match the, the moral clarity and the resolve of the Old Testament prophet Amos, who preached about justice in a time when no one really wanted to hear about it. Uh, I wonder if justice is a theme that maybe no one ever really wants to hear about, not when we're guilty of failing to enact justice. Throughout this summer, we've been studying the book of Amos, and we've been hearing this message from Amos again and again. God's covenant people cannot turn their backs on justice. Now we're nearing the end of our study, a couple more weeks, and what we find over the final three chapters of Amos is a series of visions that depict the consequences of Israel's sin. Our passage today records the first of those visions, and in it we encounter three very important themes. We're going to look at these in succession. 
three important themes, the reality of judgment, the jeopardy of denial, and the possibility of forgiveness. Let's take a quick look at each of those. So first, the reality of judgment. The first six chapters of the book of Amos, the prophet has already called out Israel's many, many sins of injustice, the extortion of the poor, the trampling of the vulnerable, the crushing of the needy, and all of this for personal gain. And as Pastor Russ taught us last week, these sins were then compounded, made worse by religious presumption, religious hypocrisy, religious indifference. Here now in chapter 7, Amos repeats what he said numerous times before, and then he punctuates it even further. Because of their sin, God's people are subject to God's judgment. Because of their sin, God's people are subject to God's judgment. We're given three different pictures of judgment in verses 1 through 9. First, God, Amos says, God will come like a plague of locusts, just devouring the prosperity of God's people. Second, God will call for judgment by fire, scorching the land. And third, God's word is, is like a plumb line. What's a plumb line? Well, it's a string, right, that's used to make sure that a wall that's being built is lined up straight, vertically perfect. And of course, if the wall is not built in line with the plumb line, if it's leaning over even a little bit, well, then eventually over time, it'll collapse, which is what God says will finally happen to Israel. Israel, which has violated God's unchanging standard, his holy word, God's people will be destroyed. We're told in verse 8, Behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. Indeed, God will judge them. As we think about this for ourselves and our context, uh, maybe one good starting point is simply this. Nobody likes talking about judgment. It's a topic that makes all of us uneasy, as it should. But we must talk about it. We must reflect on it. We must discuss this because God does. We find it in his word. And I want to apply this reminder of the reality of God's judgment for injustice simply in a few ways. Briefly, first, notice the plumb line. The, the standard against which God's people are measured and judged is God's word. God is the plumb line. Not just social opinion and not just the latest fads. Social mores and opinions will shift and change. And so that means God's people must always do the hard work of basing our evaluation of the injustices of society and our evaluation of what would constitute a just society according to the standards of God's word, not human opinion, not human feeling, 
but God's word. We must always turn and return to God's plumb line. Second, we need to admit this. We live in an age in which it's much easier to be afraid of judgment by our peers than the judgment of God. We actually feel more threatened by social shame than by divine shame, having to stand morally naked before a holy God. We need to recover a sense of accountability before God. We need to tremble before Him in the face of the possibility of our sins, our perpetration or complicity with the injustices of our society. And thirdly, Christians are called to seek justice and correct oppression, but we must not confuse this responsibility with God's exclusive right to judge and condemn. In other words, it's not your job, it's not my job, to run around and personally punish and humiliate every perpetrator of perceived oppression. Leave room for the wrath of God. Friends, you for all your passion for justice, cannot outdo God and his passion to correct oppression. In the face of judgment, well, why then won't we just simply turn from our sin? I mean, isn't that what we would expect to do? Well, there are lots of reasons why we resist this, but there's one particular reason that this passage speaks to, and this brings us to our second point. Second, the jeopardy of denial. Dear friends, one of the greatest dangers before the reality of judgment for injustice is the temptation to only hear just what we want to hear. This is what Amaziah represents in verses 10 through 17. He was the prophet priest of Bethel. He was part of the official royal court, sort of the chaplain to the king. He had the ear of the king. And notice here what he is telling the king in verse 10. He says, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. Even that language of bear, not able to bear, it could also be translated not able to contain. It would be too disruptive. It'll uh, throw out of order this wonderful social order. So therefore, Amos, leave town, get out of here. Uh, you are no longer welcome here. Don't bring your prophecy here. In other words, not only does he call Amos a traitor, and not only does he call Amos a liar, he's telling the king and therefore all the people, don't worry about it, it's gonna be all right. Nothing to see here. Listen, every one of us tends to surround ourselves with Amaziahs when the Amoses begin to make us uncomfortable. And it's not hard to do in this day and age. So many different sources we can turn to, so many different opinions. So we gather our own authorities and we surround ourselves with experts that we like. Maybe they're Bible interpreters with seemingly strong credentials. Amaziah, after all, was an ordained priest. 
And they just so happen to interpret those hard passages in the Bible in just the same way you were hoping they might be read. Or we read the writers or social commentators that we like or that agree with us in terms of our political persuasion. Or we basically only listen to people who confirm our prior beliefs and who soothe our ears. It's like what the Apostle Paul Paul warns in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We all do this. We really do. Whatever our political or ideological leanings, we need to admit this. But notice that Amos here is warning us, especially about the way we allow the Amaziahs around us to deny responsibility for sins of injustice. Dear friends, are there ways that you are doing that today? Are there ways that we are denying our responsibility, refusing to repent, refusing even to investigate and to search our souls? But friends, all this may leave us to believe that there's only judgment and no hope of mercy. So we need to quickly move to our third and our final point, third, the possibility of forgiveness. As we saw, God reveals his intentions to judge his people. To judge them like a plague of locusts, like an outburst of fire, like a crooked crumbling wall. But did you notice, in the first two pictures, the locusts and the fire, Amos earnestly pleads that God would show mercy to his people. See this in verse 2. Oh, Lord God, please forgive, Amos cries. And then in verse 4, oh, Lord God, please cease. He appeals to God's compassion. And in a most astonishing way, God in this vision relents. He, he withholds his judgment. God forgives. And not once, but twice. He responds to Amos' mediation. Twice he says about his planned judgment, it shall not be. Sisters and brothers, behold the possibility of forgiveness, even in the face of the worst of the evils of injustice. I want to be very clear about this. Sins of injustice are not unforgivable sins. The exploitation of the vulnerable is abominable in the sight of God, and yet the exploitation of the vulnerable is not an unforgivable sin. Racism is an evil in the sight of God, but racism is not 
and unforgivable sin. Some of us may be refusing to confront issues of injustice because we just feel the, the crushing, debilitating shame of the possibilities that you might actually be more sinful or more complicit than you dared imagine before. You see, no possibility of forgiveness in the world certainly reinforces that suspicion. And believe me, in this day and age, you will not find a message of mercy in our world. Some of you today need to believe in the possibility of forgiveness in Christ and receive refreshment and renewal of the gospel of grace for the ways in which you may have, we may have participated in the sins of injustice. Others of you may need to believe this very same promise and stop destroying people or treating them as though they are beyond the reach of God's mercy. And friends, this mercy of God's, this forgiveness is not beyond, it's not just simply wishful thinking. It's not something that Amos just made up in his own mind and neither should we. In fact, this mercy was God's concrete response to the ministry of a mediator, wasn't it? Amos is pleading with God, which of course itself was an echo of an earlier mediator. Going back to the book of Genesis, Abraham, when he pled with God on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, asking God to spare the city if he could just find some righteous people in their midst. It's an echo of Moses, who we find an echo in, in Exodus 32, pleading with God after God's people sinned, committed idolatry with the golden calf. God was ready to obliterate them, judge them right then and there. And yet Moses, the mediator, says, no, no, forgive them because of your promise, because of your covenant. Of course, it's a portrait of the ultimate mediator, the only true mediator between God and humanity. This is a portrait of Jesus, our, our true prophet, our true priest, our true king. Who, who in 1 John, who is called our advocate, uh, the, the one who, who actually makes a case in the court of heaven that our sin should be forgiven, uh, who the book of Hebrews calls our high priest, who pleads with God to forgive our very worst sins, our sins that destroy the lives of those around us that vandalize the image of God in people all around us, in our neighborhoods, in the streets of our cities. And he pleads with God based upon the merits of his own blood shed for us on the cross. It's the ministry of Jesus that we see here as Amos comes before God and says, forgive them, oh, forgive them. We see God turn to him and say, all right, it will not happen as I said. God truly can and does forgive. And of course, we must yet repent 
And of course, yet forgiveness does not mean that there's no longer any responsibility to turn or correct or repair the harm that's done by our injustice. Amos doesn't say, you're forgiven, so just don't worry about it. No, no, no. As we saw last week in chapter 5, the call is still the same. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But friends, do you see the hope that we have? The hope of new beginnings. The the soul-energizing hope of the gospel that not only forgives us, but makes us new. Makes us into people with a heart like God's. A heart of justice. A a heart that regards our neighbor before we regard ourselves. A, A heart of love. Because, you know, love is what this is all about, isn't it? A heart that flees from denial. Uh, flees from every opportunity to shield ourselves from conviction of sin, but rather flings ourselves into the hands of a God of mercy and seeks to live justly according to the, the, the plumb line of God, which we can do by God's Spirit. And so this is the call, isn't it? To repentance, to righteousness, but most of all, of return to our God. Dear friends, would you turn to God today? Would you rejoice in the forgiveness, the possibility of mercy today? Will you cling to Jesus, not running away from sin and shame, but running to the one who covers our shame, not running away from hard conversations or the hard challenges of institutional or personal change? Change hurts. Change is hard. But God is able to make all his grace abound to us. God loves us, even in our weakness. God can change us. Indeed, he already has begun that good work, and he will carry it on to completion. Do you have that gospel hope? Will you strengthen your hearts with this hope? In Jesus' name, let's pray together. God, we pray that you would come near to us, give assurance to our hearts of gospel pardon, gospel grace, gospel hope, and make us into women and men and children of righteousness and justice. We pray this with expectation that you will by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.